This week, we've got questions on Northern Italy, the Sacred Heart, and Catholic knighthood. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast in podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with an oscillating Charles Coulomb. Oscillating. Shifting, turning, moving along, huh? Is that it? Yeah, back and forth, yeah. So I'm not steady. I'm not trustworthy. I mean, I don't know if I'd say it that way. I feel like I, I'd want to say it in a nicer way. A nicer way. I see. A nicer way. So basically, I can't be trusted. I mean, selectively. Uh, selectively trusted. I like that. <laughs> selectively trusted. Basically, you would trust me, me with your life to some degree. No, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but I trust you with less uh, important things. <laughs> yeah, support support items like maybe taking care of a dog or something. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It's good to know I'm valued. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's. Uh, it's pretty rough getting this on top of Tony Bennett's staff. Mm. Oh, First, what's this? Well, being dumped on. Oh, being dumped on. Okay, okay, go on. Being dumped on, not not three or four days after Tony Bennett leaves. You know what next, Mel Torme? <sighs> you know you you're taking. Oh, what, you're the victim? Oh, poor Charles. Of course I'm the victim. Yes, I am the victim. Poor Charles. Abused again. Basically, I'm the universe's punching bag is what it comes down to. Do you think the world is ever is going to go the opposite direction? So it feels like in order to get something... People and organizations play the victim card. Yeah. And then they get stuff because they play the victim yeah. card. Exactly. Do you think the universe is ever going to be sick of that and just go the other direction and punish people who start to play the victim card? Uh, that's called the Black Plague. <laughs> Feel better now? Ah, <laughs> oh, you want to be a victim, huh? I got some victimhood for you right here. No, but I mean, but I mean, like, tell of the hunt. Uh, people recognizing that. I don't know, like, like making an adjustment. Like, for example, everybody I know hates cancel culture, even liberals. Yet, no one can stop it. So, is that ever well, yeah, going to end? Like, what does that look like? Well, probably what it looks like is a terrible disease that can't be controlled or a complete breakdown in social order in Silicon Valley and people getting shot. Over cancel culture? Yeah, if it gets bad enough. Although before that, I think probably 
what will happen is that cancel culture may well lose its power. In other words, people will say, yeah, whatever. In other words, the level of trust that today we reserve, or the level of distrust that we reserve today for politicians and major media will be applied to everything. So whenever you see somebody suddenly attacked by tons of people for a given thing, uh, eventually the majority of people just say, you know, sure, whatever. And that will, that will take away cancel culture's uh, power. I feel like there needs to be some sort of formal uh, society or, I don't know, something documented at least where it's – where. You have a certain organization that is demanding an apology or saying you're mean I, uh, because you said something or implied something or did some gesture that offended and oppressed people. And then you and – and then you've got a company who did the offending uh, action and basically do nothing and say, you know what? Sorry, but – sorry, not Sorry. <laughs> well, that's uh, well. Actually, what would um, what would help break it? And I'm sure it'll happen eventually. If some major person, like oh, I don't know, your friend Elon Musk or somebody, uh, said, you know what? From now on, when this stuff comes out, uh, whoever is the victim of it gets a promotion. If you call one of my people racist or homophobic or this or that or the other. Uh, they get a promotion. So keep talking. Get that mouth going. Get that mouth in gear. Get it yapping. And that, that would be the end of cancel culture. If it becomes a sort of reward, a sort of badge of pride. I mean, we're certainly approaching some sort of tipping point, And I, for one, would rather it be a peaceful tipping point than uh, murder and mayhem. But that's just me. I, the, well, the murder and mayhem aspect seems unbelievable to me. You say that, but I don't even understand how well, cancel I don't, culture I don't can either. Be get that. Uh, well, eventually, when people begin to identify cancel culture with some geographical or particular place, that place will probably be victimized, would be my guess. I mean, if everybody thinks of Silicon Valley as the center of cancellations or Manhattan or wherever. Well, then people who work in major companies and major communications companies in those places have better watch themselves. Well, we kind of went through this one time. Everybody, it's funny how short everyone's memories are um, because nobody seems to remember Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Uh, that was that went nowhere uh, yeah but what was fun was Occupy City Hall in LA that was great fun and tell us about that one well you remember the occupied uh, the occupied people took over the city hall not the, the building but the park around city hall and they turned it into a commune for months and then they began getting upset because the homeless started moving into their encampment and setting up shop as well. They didn't like that for some reason. I like that. I like that turn. I like they're, they're so. Yeah. That's just getting your just desserts. I thought so. 
but it it cost a ton of money to re, to uh, after they got tired of the homeless moving in on them and left. Uh, it cost a ton of money to restore the grounds of City Hall. What was that exactly? I think it was like 2010, 2011. Yeah. Um, when was that? Because that would make sense because that would be after Too Big to Fail, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, that, 2011. Occupy Los yeah. Angeles. Uh, following the original Occupy Wall Street, 2011. It lasted until 2014. Two years, 10 months, three weeks, and three days. Hmm. That was a long time. They finally got tossed out. Uh, Via Ragosa threw them out. Remember Via Ragosa? I remember him better than anyone else because of his infamous, despicable role in the Democratic National... Um, what the um not committee is it committee the the um what do you call it when they when the party gets together and they do the rally the um, the convention the convention the not the, yeah. the convention where they amended their um the constitution of the party i guess or something like that and they wanted to put god in the constitution that oh god has played a part of um, this party's history, blah, 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 blah. And so the vote was done verbally, you know? So everyone who's in favor say aye, aye. Everyone who's against it say nay, nay. Right. And everybody said nay. Everybody, you, yeah. this is on YouTube. You guys can look this up. Via Ragosa, DNC. Um, everybody said nay. And I remember he looks around and like he doesn't know what to do because they, he just... The delegates didn't want it, and and they they just forced it through anyway. He asked this, yeah. and he he looked around. He asked this old woman. This old woman came on the stage, and I guess she just kind of gave him the cue that just like, hey, we're going to power this on through. It doesn't matter what they say, whether it's yes or no. This is going to happen, and so they jammed it through. And I thought that was the best. Um exhibition example of democracy in action sure you get what to the right people get what they want good stuff good stuff so yeah well let me ask you shifting gears completely uh how did you celebrate the anniversary of the moon landing i didn't how did you <laughs> How come you always expect me to celebrate and, and honor these very obscure happening, historical happenings? Obscure? Let me tell you something, mister. That moon landing, I stayed up to watch it with my family. I was a little boy. And let me tell you something. That moon landing epitomized the hopes, dreams, and desires of an entire generation, which you have just seen fit to wave aside. I can say the same exact same thing with my experience for the O.J. Simpson chase. I watched it. Yeah, we we're all gathered around televisions, and that epitomized <laughs> our hopes and dreams. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference in your generation. <laughs> well, okay. If 
if if you really want to say that that was the Generation X's aspirations <laughs> and dreams, <laughs> the OJ pursuit. I I have no response to that. I I, gosh, you know. Uh, the book that I grew up with, You Will Go to the Moon, the version of your generation is, you you got to get by on the freeway. <laughs> Someone lowered sights, if you ask me. Everybody but. was cheering him on. You know, when you're watching a car chase, you want them to beat it. You know, you, you hear everybody, because there's overpass, there, um, obviously, you could walk across the freeway, the top of the freeways, and... um, You know, people are holding signs. Everybody, The whole state or probably the whole nation was watching it so do you commemorate that every year you know i don't know i i should i i really should that should be a thing it should be a thing OJ's OJ, OJ. yeah i gotta do it too all right we are really retreating into the past today, june 17th june 17th wow what year uh 1994 i was 10 Gosh. years old Was that long ago that's going to be 30 years. That's going to be 30 yeah. years. Two years time. We better do something special for the... Uh, there was something really, really special for the uh, OJ race. Arnold Palmer shot a round of 81 that day in wow. golf. Car chase. There we go. There's the real thing. OJ chase. You know, that, that doesn't seem like any time at all ago to me. And it's almost 30 years ago, but it doesn't feel like any time at all. Mm. Isn't that strange? I I don't know what to say about that. What are you doing now? What are you researching? Well, I'm just, just trying to find out Where this stuff is really leading us? Where are we going? What are we actually saying? What are we doing with this? You know, what does it all mean? Wow, you're really asking the hard questions. Yeah, I know, because that's the kind of guy I am. <sighs> well, all right, forget, forget it, forget NASA, forget the the sacrifices of our brave astronauts, even unto this day. Forget America's reach out into space. The spirit of Columbus and the Lewis and Clark, the early pioneers, forget all that. Forget a time when men sailed the seas in search of new worlds, new lands. Magellan, Amerigo Vespucci, da Gama, forget all of them. Let's just be content with this island Earth. That's right. I have a random question for you. <laughs> I have a random question for you. When was the last time you were on a boat? Ah, that is a random question. And the answer is about six months ago. On a boat? Yep. Doing what? Going from the from uh, the dock to Franzenborg Castle uh, on the lake in the middle of Luxembourg Park. Oh, wow! Okay, hanging with the Habsburgs. 
Hanging with the Habsburgs. I like that. <laughs> Hanging with the Habsburgs to the tune of Smoking in the Boys' Room. <laughs> smoking in the Boys' Room, same tune. Hanging with the Habsburgs. Though there were no actual Habsburgs online uh, or present at that moment. Although, uh, they, of course, built the, uh, the whole setup. Before that, it's been a while. I think probably the last time before that was taking the ferry from uh, Vancouver, uh, B.C. to uh, Victoria. Hmm. Okay. All right. What's that was in- a r- random question. And that was really – well, because well, you were talking about explorers, and I thought, oh, they're on ships. But then uh, you just – you're flying everywhere. You're driving everywhere. But you're not necessarily uh, um, all about the life aquatic, shall we say? I cross the uh, I cross the English Channel. Uh, you swim it on, on a no on a boat. <laughs> okay. I've gone from uh, Catalina to uh, from San Pedro to Catalina. Hmm, that's a good one. Right. Oh, I, I've I've been to Fashion Island uh, from Newport Beach. <laughs> okay. I took the ferry from New London, Connecticut to uh, Port Orient, Long Island, which is like three hours. Did you ever go to Seattle? Yes. That seems weird to me because looking at the nature of Seattle, it feels like you're on a boat daily. Like you're on a boat to work, depending on where you yeah. live. Where you live, yeah. But I mean, a lot of a lot of people commute by ferry. But no, I mean, if you live in Staten Island, uh you might commute by ferry to New York. Mm. All right. Uh, what's new in the world of Charles? Anything going on? You're doing a lot of writing? It's pretty much just writing, writing, writing. I don't have a life right now. Mm. But my loss may be your gain. I hope so. All right. Uh, let's. All right. Uh, did you want to do the calendar? Anything before we get into the memes of production? You can get right into oh, it. Uh, uh, well, let's see. July 25th uh, this week is the Feast of St. James the Great, the patron of Spain, Santiago Matamoros. So if you live in a Spanish-founded town like, oh, I don't know, Los Angeles, uh, he's sort of your patron. So say a prayer. How many patrons does Los Angeles have? Don't we have – isn't St. Viviana coming up? Yes, September 1st. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, she's the patron by virtue of the cathedral. Our Lady of the Angels is the primary patron. I see. St. Ferdinand is used to be in the old Trinity days. He was on our calendar because of San Fernando Ray mission. Hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah we, uh, we used to have a number of, of local saints. Uh, not, well... You know, now we just have uh, Cardinal Mahoney to venerate. All right. Uh, let's go right into the memes of production. Nationalize the memes of production. For the common good. All right. Um, we are doing this show cold today. No prep. So I'm going to share the screen with Charles so he can see what's going on. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, so John... John wrote in. Let me uh, let me read what John had to say. 
Uh, he I says, agreed what John had to say. I, I, oh, I, I, John, I was at my local Costco in Lenexa, Kansas on July 1st. I overheard to the Costco employees lamenting that the stuff was already out. I think they were lamenting the mad rush from Labor Day to the end of the year there. If I'm the first one to send in, I hope Charles will send me one of those uh, Ronco Slicer Dicers. There you go. So John sent in a picture. So Halloween. So he says July 1st. They've got all the wow. costumes in Costco. Wow. Yeah. That's... They're loading up. That's a lot of Spider-Man, too. That's They're just going all out. Um, so I have one myself, uh, which I showed you already via text, Charles. Um, I went to the mall, went to the Hallmark store. Um, they've got the Halloween stuff uh, yeah. all, already. But wait, there's more. They not only have Halloween stuff, they have... Christmas. <laughs> we wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas. Christmas in July. That that's an yeah. actual Hallmark theme. Actually, they play Christmas movies in July. I think June is weddings month. July is Christmas in July. I think <laughs> based on their programming. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy, my old God, and sin reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Well, you know, what I love about this is really good marketing because they don't actually use the word Christmas because to use Christmas right now is just too embarrassing and sounds weird and probably creates a certain emotional <laughs> reaction. But at the same time, people want Christmas. So the, the, the code word is keepsake. They've got keepsakes here. That's you can see that on the white sign Hallmark keepsake. But these are actually really high-end ornaments. I looked at some of these. It's absolutely they're like $60 ornaments some some of these. So, um for your Christmas tree. Anyhow, that takes the cake. Um Christmas in July. Um So there you go. I'm going to unshare the screen now, Charles, so you Well, no, I I've got something for you. Okay. Since I, uh, if you could put this out to our beloved viewers, I think one good turn deserves another, don't you? Okay. If it's a good turn. Oh, this is wonderful. I want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas in July. Oh, that's nice. You like that? Yeah. It's, it's friendly. And it's patriotic, too. So it combined, it's basically, this is what Santa Claus is like on the 4th of July. Koreans around the North Pole waving American flags. All right, so I'm just going to put it on the screen. It says Getty Images. I don't know if that's copyright, but here we go. Looks pretty old. Um, yeah. The American flag, I like that right there. Very strategic. Well, it's Christmas in July. 
this is how Santa celebrates the fourth at the North Pole. Oh. He careens around waving the American flag. You know, you didn't know Santa Claus was American, did you? I didn't know that. But what did you think he was? Well, that's true. I mean, I, I picture him speaking American, so I guess he is American. Americanish. <laughs> yes, I mean, St. Nicholas is obviously not an American, but Santa Claus isn't really St. Nicholas. He's Santa Claus. He's our very own. Born in New York. Born on the 4th of July, probably. He was born in the lobby of the Macy's uh, department store. All right. Um, yeah, so thank you, John, for sen sending in the picture. John has been a patron. He orders a lot of books from the bookstore. I bet you didn't know that about John. Uh, I didn't. Should we get him a slicer dicer? <laughs> you know, I... You can get John a slicer dicer if you want, Charles. Absolutely. I, I think you'd welcome that. I can't. I blew all my extra money on the um, on the uh, uh, executive staff party you threw at Denny's. Oh right, yeah, where we took it out of your pay, but all you could afford yep. was eight people in Denny's. Yeah, it was supposed to be shutters on the beach for all of our viewers and patrons, but that is said, that's great. It's coming out of your uh, your wallet. So you took eight people to Denny's, and I wasn't one of the eight. All right. Uh, book of the week? Uh, book of the week. The book of the week, ladies and gentlemen, is a very special one this week. It's a summer-themed book called Dandelion Wine by the late and very much lamented Ray Bradbury. Now, you're probably wondering why I thought of Ray Bradbury. Well, you know, I, knew, I used to know him somewhat. And today, I, uh, over the past couple of days, I gave five young folks I know here in uh, the complex, uh, not classmates or college kids, but literally, you know, teenagers. I gave each one of them a copy of Ray's Something Wicked This Way Comes, which for me is one of the capital Halloween books. Well, Dandelion Wine does for summer what Something Wicked This Way Comes does for Halloween. And I'm not really a summer person. I'm not someone who loves summer. But there is a certain magic to it, especially when you're young. And Ray really, really, really captures it in Dead in the Lion Wine. The other thing about it is that a selection of it, a piece of it, I anthologized in my anthology, The Muse and the Bottle. Great writers of the joys of drinking. And it was interesting that after turning down uh, a request for cash from a very, the grandson of a very famous writer who wanted literally a thousand pounds sterling for the uh, selection of his grandfather's work that I thought of for the, uh, for the book, I didn't really want it, frankly. It was my publishers who did. And when they saw how much you wanted, they let me alone. But then a selection of Dandelion wine I uh, wanted to put in. Now, I knew Ray somewhat socially, but you don't approach people directly when it's this kind of thing. So I called his agent in New York, and I told her that uh, I told her the section I wanted. 
And uh, she said she talked to him to get back to me with a price. Well, she did. And she said, $5. Or no, 5 I said, 1000 No. 100 No. How much? $5. I said, that's it? She said, yep, $5. Well, why? Why so little? I said, I don't know. Next time you see him, ask him. So I did. And he said, well, there are two reasons. One, the selection you chose, I really like. And I thought it showed very good taste on your part. But secondly, uh, it's an honor to have my work appear next to some of the other people in that anthology. Now, this man at the time was arguably our greatest living writer. And that was, that was how he was. So I'm uh, doing this for uh, two reasons. One, because it's a great book and really epitomizes the best of summer, especially when you're a kid but also as a tribute to the late and very much lamented Ray Bradbury, who was a master of enchantment and wonder and really, um, really one of, in my humble estimation, one of the finest writers the United States ever produced. So that's the book of the, uh, the book of the week. All right. <clears throat> Very interesting. Um, all right, questions. Okay. All right, first one is from, um, I think a gentleman. Is this the, the burn round? We're, we're going to get to it. The burn round, it's going to. Whatever he, you call it. He, I think he's got a question before, before it, but um, so right. he, he's got the moniker, I got a gal in Kalamazoo. Okay, I'm sure he does. That's a Glenn Miller song. I got a gal in Kalamazoo, zoo, 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 yeah. Right, he says, saludos desde Panama. couple of questions for Mr. Coulomb. Ah. Uh, number one, on the 19th of July, there is a procession in Las Tablas, Panama, in veneration of Santa Librada, or uh, also known as Saint Wiltagefortis. 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 Uh, I had never heard of her, but was intrigued by her, and she is depicted <laughs> as a crucified bearded female, sometimes with a crown. Although she is referred to as a saint, I do not believe she was ever officially canonized by the church. No, is, not at all. Is Mr. Coulomb familiar with her? He sure is. What's the story there, Charles? Well, she was also called Saint Encumber. Uh, she's a mythical figure, uh, completely. And the idea is that she uh, did not want to get married. Her, uh, father insisted that she get married. She refused, uh, and asked God to give her a beard to dissuade her would be, uh, suitor. So he did, but he got her crucified anyway. And, uh, the story goes that, uh, women who wanted to get rid of their husbands would pray to her for, you know, Rapid release. Wow. Her, her cultus was condemned. <laughs> Officially? Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Uh, so his second question, uh, he says, in a previous episode, 
Mr. Colombo asks his favorite movies featuring a certain group of actors from old Hollywood. I noticed that several great actors were left out of whose films should be hardly ignored or overlooked. Please ask Mr. Coulomb to name his favorite movie from the following actors. Okay. Jack Lemmon. The Great Race. I actually saw that one. That's a good one. Okay. Um, Charlton Heston. The Omega Man. Sidney Poitier. Lilies of the Field. Okay. Uh, Bing Crosby. Gosh, so many. That's cool. We'll say going my way just to to make people feel better. Irene Dunn. Um, I remember Mama, I think. Lauren Bacall? Uh, to, to have and to have not. The Marx Brothers? Duck Soup. Spencer Tracy? San Francisco. Uh, Bob Hope? It's another one that has an awful lot, but... Um, I'll go with um, I go with catch that ghost. Yeah, he he does a good scared <laughs> scared. Yeah, I I liked him in those those ghost movies. Uh, Olivia de Havilland. Oh, easy peasy Japanese. Gone with the wind. Although she's great in Hush Our Sweet Charlotte. Who who is that? Is is that the um? Is that Ashley's wife? Yes. Okay. Oh wow! My mom loves loves her. Okay. Um. Uh, Bert Lancaster. You know, this is going to sound funny, but I liked him in a lot of things. Um, there's a pirate film was in. I think the Black Pirate or something was called, but. He was really neat in his last film, Field of Dreams. Okay. Elizabeth Taylor. National Velvet. Paul Newman. Um, That's a tough one for me. Yeah. That's a tough one. We'll say The Sting. For me, it's Cool Hand Luke. Um, Both good. Yeah. Both good. Fred Astaire. Oof. That's another tough one. But we'll say Easter Parade. (laughs) Last but not least, John Wayne. You're going to, you know, actually, this is boring because you're going to say The Quiet Man. No. No, you're not? You're not going to say that? No. True Grit. Really? Yes. Rooster Cogburn. And the lady. That's the sequel <laughs> to True Grit. Okay. Uh, that That is, wow, that actually is super surprising. Well, actually, 
she wore a yellow ribbon is another favorite of mine mm. with him. Okay. Yeah. Mine is the searchers. Um Genghis Khan, the conqueror. That's, that that's, is his work. That that's insane. That's that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of casting. That, that's like that's like Anthony Quinn in Lawrence of Arabia, probably worse. Um, but Anthony Quinn being a, a Muslim, um, that's just okay. Um, I have one more actually because uh, you guys named a lot of really good ones, but I have to name my favorite actress um, okay. of the old school. It's uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Well, double indemnity. <sighs> Yeah, okay. I guess it's pretty good. Fred, uh, okay. I guess uh, so. You know, you, but see, everybody always goes after uh, John Wayne's portrayal of Genghis Khan. <laughs> you know, and they say, oh, it was terrible. It was awful. It was this, it was that. I mean, he delivered one of my favorite lines. Gee, princess, you're awful pretty when you're wrathful. Did he really say that? Yes. <laughs> that was inspired casting, I'll tell you. I don't know who came up with that one, but the casting was as good as the street writing. That's gold. Um, so I'm going to leverage this into um, a kind of a, a more in-depth discussion. I watched with my wife's family last weekend... None other than one of the movies that uh, I took uh, uh, took umbrage with you about, which was Harvey, uh, Jimmy Stewart, because you had picked, you had said your your favorite Jimmy Stewart movie was Harvey, and yeah. I was dismayed because I had never even heard of this movie, uh, and yeah, so we watched it, um, and the first thing I have to say, I have to recommend it to all the fans out there because it is completely on brand. It is the most on-brand movie for off the menu that there there is, like ever made, like ever ever. Um, I, but I couldn't. So, do, do you want to give the premise of the movie? I'm I'm really interested to get uh, people watching. Well, this. yes, I I could do that. I could do that. You see, uh, Elwood P. Dowd uh, is a very nice man. Lives. Somewhere in the Midwest with his sister, the sister's daughter, is a become of quality in that part of the country. Has a very nice house, you know, and uh, his sister has social ambitions, especially for her daughter to marry well. But the problem is her brother has a friend, and uh, the friend takes a little getting used to. He's a uh, a puka which is a, uh, an Irish spirit that came over at some point. Uh, when you can see him, he uh, takes the form of a uh, six-foot-tall uh, white rabbit, which takes a little getting used to. This is true. Um, and ever since Harvey, that's what he calls himself anyway. That's what, what Elwood calls him. He called himself that to Elwood, and Elwood, being a friend and all, decided he would call him whatever he wanted to call him. If he wanted to be called Harvey, that's what he wanted to be called. Well, the thing was, after Harvey came into Elwood's life, Elwood, 
you're a much nicer man. Now, the problem is that for the most part, and I say the most part, only Elwood can actually see Harvey, which makes a number of people think that Elwood missing something upstairs. But uh, turns out it's a little more complex than that. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, that's a good that's a good summation, Charles. Um, so how was the imitation? That was dead on. That was a great Jimmy Stewart as in that character. Um, but so this is one of the movies uh, where again, my reaction is this movie thematically could not be made today at all uh even like as a remake but you know i i couldn't put my finger on it why because Uh, well i i i think i know why you see harvey was appealing to basic decency and goodness in people a bit of whimsicality but a bit of honesty and remember, Harvey led Elwood to befriend all sorts of people. He'd have them over for dinner, drunks and all kinds of marginal people, but not because they were drunks or marginalized, simply because they were people whom he happened to like. And that's what we're not allowed today. Things are not allowed to be pleasant just because they're pleasant. They've got to serve some higher, deeper thing that nevertheless manages to reject everything that ever came before. And see, that's not what Harvey was about. You notice he didn't tell his sister she was stupid for wanting her daughter to marry well. He was apologetic that he wasn't helpful in achieving that. And that's the thing. A movie like Harvey only makes sense in a culture that's got, oh, I don't know, some basic decency. That's with the idea that pleasant things are good in and of themselves and don't need justification. I think if Harvey were given a submachine gun and allowed to run wild, that would be fun. Hmm. Okay. But you remember, uh, Dowd's, uh, two of my favorite lines of his. One is, I tried reality and it didn't work very well for me. <laughs> and the other was, I've been nice and I've been clever. And I've come to prefer nice. Hmm. Yeah. Thematically, it, it was weird. I was wondering if people were going to say, "Oh, this is um, like Christianity." Like, if if people were going to say, "Oh, it's make believe, but it's making people happy." Well, my response to that is uh, Tolkien's response to people who attack escapism hmm. is that it's easy to attack escapism, but notice the ones who do are usually the jailers. Hmm. Interesting. As far as Christianity being make-believe, that's the whole point of Harvey. In the end, it turns out Harvey's not make-believe. That's the great twist in the film. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen it, it turns out that Elwood is very much the smartest man in town. 
And in that sense, it may be very much like Christianity. Despite all of the people who are so smart and know so much in their mouths, their big mouths and their little tiny non-existent brain stems, despite all that, Harvey is a real being. And of course, uh, Elwood asked him why he chose him. And his response was pretty simple. I like him. <laughs> there used to be, I don't know if we can find it, but there used to be a picture online of Harvey the Puka with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, it, uh, it's there. I, I was looking at it. Um, yeah. I thought it was kind of creepy. Creepy? Creepy. All right. It, let, let, you know what? Let the audience judge that. Don't don't you decide for them if it's creepy or not. Here. Now, does that strike you as creepy? Yes. Really? Uh, yes. But he's got a nicely tied bow tie. All right. I'm going to put it up for everybody. All right, folks, you get to vote. Creepy or non-creepy? And remember, everyone who votes non-creepy will be invited to the next uh, uh, bash at Shutters. That's creepy, Charles. I, that's I just, There's no way around it. <laughs> you think it's creepy? It reminds me of the Bunny and Donnie Darko, which is an old indie Jake Gyllenhaal movie. It remind who was also a well, actually, it was more of kind of a homicidal bunny or, or kind of a, a dark twist to it, uh, as you can imagine. But he's um, not he's not twisted at all. He's very nice. I I just I guess there's just this weird context there when you've got um, what's the word dissociative a dissociative. Well, I guess it's. When you're talking to somebody and it's not that person doesn't exist, there's that content, there's that hey, creepiness. Except, there. what do they discover at the end? I, you know, I think it's like a Chris, the end of a Christopher Nolan film. I feel like that's it, like the at the end of the the of Inception or maybe the movie K Pax or whatever, where it's choose your own, choose your ending. Oh, they, they made it pretty definite. There was no question in Harvey. But how could they, though? <laughs> they did. People got chased. Doors opened and closed. And finally, even Elvira, his sister, admitted that she saw him from time to time. I, I thought they were just filming hallucinations. I don't know. Um, no, I think you just have to accept it. I just don't that, accept it. I don't know. Uh, Harvey Harvey came to whatever dumpy little town in the Midwest oh, would be down at his... Uh, and his sister lived in. And he took her presidents. Oh, now you're saying Pukas can't live in the Midwest. What do you got against the Midwest? I bet you haven't even been there except maybe to fly over it. That's right. What am I missing out on? Lots. <laughs> Everyone from the Midwest is going to... Is is Cincinnati the Midwest? You bet. Darn. Okay. I'm going to hear it from those people. That's yes, okay. Yes, you though. are. 
Uh, you are brave. <laughs> All right, just for those of us who are a little unclear to the concept. All right. The Midwest is the following. Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. Missouri is kind of, uh, people fight over it, but we'll leave it to the south. Uh, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, North and South Dakota. That is the Midwest. What about Iowa? I said Iowa. Oh, okay. Iowa's part of the Midwest. The South is Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma. That's fine. I just don't accept Maryland or Delaware as southern states. You've never been to either one of them. Doesn't. I've been pretty close to Maryland. And they are literally south of the Mason-Dixon line. That's what makes a southern state. So, deal. The northern <laughs> frontier of Maryland and of Delaware is the Mason-Dixon line. Oh, you're looking it up to try to catch me. You'll be sorry. <laughs> I can tell. You'll be sorry. Go ahead. Look it up. You'll see. All right. Anyhow, that's fine. And the mid-Atlantic states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and? Pennsylvania, New York, no? Yes. Okay. Yes. Only three of them, but there are six New England states. I don't know. Uh, Connecticut, Vermont, Massachusetts, um, Maine, Rhode Island. One more. I don't know. Uh, I'm missing one. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. There you go. So now you've got you've got the biggest part of the country taken away. What's left is the far west. Right. And that's Montana, Wyoming. Colorado, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Alaska, and Hawaii. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. So now you know how the country is shaped. Don't you feel mm -hmm. good about yourself? Yes. All right. And there's one who has been in every, every one of those 50 United States. Every single one. I got to tell you. I love all 50 of our United States. Absolutely. Was that reassuring? That's that's great. That's beautiful. Uh, well, you know, that's important. That's actually important for you to say because I feel like a lot of people get um, confused because uh, <laughs> whenever there's negativity... Because um, I know we've even received comments like where people have said, "Wow, you must you really hate the United States," um, and I guess they just missed it, you know. Well, for those of you who think that, let me tell you a funny little thing. When I was 17 years old, I went to uh, New Mexico Military Institute of the ROTC program, and to do that, and later on in the National Guard. I had to swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
Now, mind you, this was the early 80s, and it was a very peaceful time, and I never saw any kind of dangerous activity whatsoever, except perhaps drinking too heavily. In my short, not very glorious period in our armed forces. But why do I say that? Because, like everybody else I went to school with, I thought I was going to die fighting the Soviets for the great and glorious United States. So, if you don't think I love the United States, I have two words for you. Get stuffed. Not elegant, but I think they, they adequately convey my attitude. Hmm. All right. All right. Now, now we're getting to the serious, the serious questions. This is people like Von De Rado, they're probably like, what is all these shenanigans? I'm just skipping to the serious questions. Okay, here we go. Oh, serious oh. question time. Okay. All right, uh, from Gabriel. I think this is one of his first questions. Uh, so thank you for submitting a question, Gabriel. Um, he says, uh, Dear Sirs, I have a question regarding the reality of the United States as a single nation. Ha, 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 ha. Conservative pundit and Daily Wire creator Michael Knowles recently lamented the loss of the concept and feeling of the United States of America as a single nation holding on to hope that all Americans have enough in common to be able to remain united as such. New polity, on the other hand, seems to reject this, claiming that there are enough cultural differences between a man of New York from a man from Los Angeles that they couldn't possibly be part of the same nation despite their similarities. New polity also claims that America is more of an empire where multiple different states and sometimes different nations coexist under a single geopolitical entity, though still exhibiting their differences as separate peoples. Furthermore, furthermore, Mr. Uh, Knowles goes on to give the impression that he dislikes conservatives giving their responses to the State of the Union address in foreign languages. I can only guess that he is at least primarily referring to Spanish. I'm a Californian and can note that California was not founded in 1850 with its admission to the Union, but rather in 1769 when Father Junipero Serra founded Mission San Diego de Alcala in New Spain. It is clear that America is not a primarily racially or linguistically based nation, leaving some to believe that she is an ideological nation or perhaps one that is constituted by ideas and beliefs instead. This also begs your thoughts on not only the realities of American and American ethnic minority identity, but also on assimilation itself, and to what extent minorities, both recent immigrants and their assimilated children, should embrace their ethnic and cultural heritage, even when sometimes the assimilated like myself have very few pieces of their forefathers' culture and or language left. Thank you both. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, indeed. Well, these, of course, are issues that I've struggled with my whole life. Firstly, as a member of a cultural minority myself, the New England French Canadians, albeit one born in New York, um, not only do I belong to a minority culture, which was despised for a good deal of our history in New England, um, it's a minority that doesn't matter in the slightest. 
to the vast majority of Americans. Um, and yet has a, a long history, a very proud history that predates the uh, creation of the United States and was in fact forged in enmity toward the Anglo-American settlers whose descendants would start the United States. Plus, if that isn't bad enough, I was born in New York. It'll always feel more like home. I've lived most of my life in Los Angeles. And as we were discussing in the pre in, before the pre-show, I'm very, very fond of a lot of California. And as we just mentioned, I've been in every state of the Union. So these are issues that really speak to me where I live. The other thing, of course, is that I've lived the past five years of my life in the ruins of Austria-Hungary, which for most of its history was an extremely successful multinational state made up of peoples who are quite different from each other, and yet, especially as seen in 2020 hindsight by their descendants when comparing themselves with outsiders, nevertheless had a lot in common. If you look at electoral and other maps of uh, Ukraine, Poland, Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, countries that have uh, portions that were part Habsburg, part non-Habsburg, you could almost see the old boundaries in modern election maps. So the uh, anxious as their forebears were 100 years ago to break off from the empire and go off on their own, nevertheless, a lot of their attitudes and their feelings and their dealings with life, they've got more in common with each other than they do with their respective nationalities that were not part of the empire. These are all in my, in my thoughts. One of the biggest differences between the United States and Austria-Hungary was that both were multinational states that in one level did not make any sense, ethnically speaking, culturally speaking, but practically speaking, worked together pretty well and had a non-practical, or two of them, uh, uh, unitive force. In the case of Austria-Hungary, it was the Catholic faith and the Habsburg dynasty. Uh, and between them, they forged a multinational state that, as I say, worked very well when it was around, and it leaves its marks even now, which brings us back to the United States. The difference is that we have neither a dynasty nor a unified religion. So we don't have that. The ideology that people refer to certainly occupied that place, but that ideology has died as a unit of force. Uh, this was brought home to me very strongly when Mr. Trump made his Mount Rushmore speech in 2020. And everybody, uh, all his supporters were jumping up and down about how wonderful it was. And all his opponents were going out about how terrible it was. And I realized that any politician of either party could have given the same speech when I was a boy. It was boilerplate Americanism. That's all. So, this brings us to the question of um, America as a united country. 
Well, let's look at the first fact, which is, it is a country. It does exist. It may not in a lot of ways make a lot of sense, but it does exist. And yeah, there are a lot of differences between the man from California and the man from New York. But they do have a shared history. They do have a shared way of looking at the world, which is unlike that of any other country. That they have. A, uh, an assimilated uh, Mexican from Texas is a lot more like a Swede from Minnesota than either of them are like Mexicans or Swedes. I mean, that's just a reality. Um, so, that's the first thing. The second thing is that part of our problem is that a great deal of our patriotism was, in fact, built on that ideology. Not in reality. So, as I tried to do, uh, believe it or not, with uh, Star Spangled Crown, apart from talking about monarchy, I talked about what America really is and what what we might aim for in terms of a new unifying thing. Because the fact is that as a, as a country, we've done some really neat stuff in science and in the arts and all that. Our arts may not be the greatest, but they're not bad. We've done some really neat things. And I think it would be a great loss to the world if that were to be flushed away. Moreover, sitting here in what was Austria-Hungary, uh, I see the results of breaking up the real in favor of an imagined paradise, of letting the, per the perfect be the enemy of the good. Now, as far as the minorities, and I consider myself one, of our country, we have something to bring to the table. A lot of us still aren't insane as far as family life and all that goes. It's primarily amongst minorities that you'll find resistance to the insanity of Wokery. Um, Lord knows that it's captured the WASP elites completely and their institutions. Uh, and they consider themselves to be the real Americans. So apparently, you're not a real American unless you think that it's the most evil country that ever existed, founded in genocide and built in slavery. Now, if you don't think that, if you're grateful to God that your ancestors came to the United States and benefited from it, uh, and if you would like to see the country do well, not because it's the last best hope of mankind or the shining city on the hill, but simply because it's the country you were born in that God brought you and your ancestors to. That's all, that's all the criteria you need. You don't have to love your mother because uh, she's woman of the year. She doesn't need to be. All she needs is to be your ma. Your dad does not have to be a wartime hero to merit your affection. All he needs is to be your father. So similarly, and this I think was a great mistake from the get-go that we have to address, the United States do not require our love and our patriotism 
because they're the most wonderful thing the world has ever seen. No. They have a right to require it from us because they're our country. Because it's where God decided from all eternity we would be born or that we would go to. Now, I agree. There does have to be a new animating principle, a new animating philosophy to give the country life. That's certainly true. And as a believing Catholic, I believe that to be the Catholic faith, just as Arrestus Bronson did way back in the 1840s. Without it, he said, the United States will not be able to endure. With it, they might. And I feel exactly the same way. And I believe that the most patriotic thing an American Catholic could do, a Catholic American could do, is to pray and work for the conversion of his country to the Catholic faith. Even as it is for a Japanese Catholic, or an Indian Catholic, or any inhabitant of a human country, a French Catholic, an Austrian Catholic, they have an easier time in some ways because um, a lot of their culture is so Catholic. But on the other hand, we have it a little easier in some ways because our country is not as a whole rejected the faith that never had it. So that's what I think about it. I don't have a problem with replying to the uh, State of the Union address in Spanish, not least because that's taking the enemy's own crap. They're the ones who are saying that everything American is awful, everything Anglo is awful. Fine. And I, I might, were I uh, in that position, I might respond to them in Canadian French with the worst accent I could muster, as nasally as I possibly could, and with a choice of vocabulary as incomprehensible to non Canadian as I possibly could do. It would be to make a point, of course, to the people who, um, the people in charge at the moment, <clears throat> who think our country is the worst that ever existed. And, and mind you, the Declaration of Independence attacks the Quebec Act, which gave my ancestors our freedom, religion, and laws. I don't celebrate the 4th of July for the Declaration of Independence. I celebrate it because of the country that I actually have lived in and the country that gave me life and the country that once upon a time I offered to risk my life for. The rest of it's all and that's what wokery is. That's what critical race theory is. All this garbage. Um, it may be, however, that the United States will break up. I pray God they do not. If they do, then I pray God that each of the pieces convert one way or the other and go in whatever direction God has intended for them. But for myself, I was born in the United States and I will love and be loyal to them until the day I die. I don't mind making fun of them. 
I'm not going to pretend they're the greatest country that ever lived, the shining city on the hill, the last best hope of mankind. What makes the flag sacred to me is not its own nature, but the fact that Americans have died for it. It gave it a sort of sacredness. But it's not a thing in itself. Otherwise, it'd be an idol. That's how I feel about these United States. Hmm. Okay. A question from Will, who says, uh, what does Charles know about the history of northern Italy, such as Veneto? My great-grandfather came from a small mountain village called Falcade, which was not too far from Canale del Gordo, where Albino Luciani, Pope John Paul I, came from. Thank you. Falcare, whoa, cantare, whoa. Sorry. Well, Venetia, northern Italy has a very complex history to say the least. But Venetia has probably the least complex because um, in the year 800, I guess, the, um, maybe it was only 500, well, at some point, barbarians drove the inhabitants of Aquileia away from their Roman town and into what became the Venetian lagoon. And to escape them, the Venetians stuck pilings into the uh, into the gooey muck and erected buildings. And that was the start of the start of the city of Venice. And the Venetian Republic, the Serenissima, they say, lasted a thousand years. Uh, it re- initially, it was a tributary city to the um, uh, Byzantine Empire, which is why it was not incorporated into Charlemagne's empire with the rest of northern Italy. <clears throat> Over time, the Venetians would uh, expand in two directions. Landward, into what's now Venetia and a part of what's now Lombardy, and then south along the coast. It became a big seafaring people, an empire, in fact. Istria, a big chunk of Dalmatia, uh, the uh, Ionian Islands, Corfu, and places like that. Crete and Cyprus, actually. And Chios and all sorts of Greek islands. As the Byzantine Empire decayed in the 12, 13, 1400s, they picked up all this real estate. But then, starting in 1571, when La Serenissima helped to win the great battle of Lepanto, bit by bit, the Turks began to push back and take island after island. In 1715, the Venetians fought a great war alongside uh, the Holy Roman Empire and Portugal and so on, and won and lost Morea, the Peloponnesus. And so by the time of uh, the French Revolution, they pretty much had the Ionian Islands, Dalmatia, and Venetia, and that was it. Uh, As a result of their conquest by Napoleon, they were then divided. Uh, Venetia itself, Dalmatia and all that going to Austria. And the Austrians had to to give Venetia up for a little bit to the French puppet kingdom of Italy. 
but then they got it back at the Congress of Vienna. So that was the uh, uh, at the Congress of Vienna, La Serenissima was not revived. The Republic, which was a an oligarchic republic, they had a Doge, a Duke, who was elected by members of the of the uh, noble families, nobody else. So it became part of the Lombardo-Venetian kingdom, uh, which included Milan, which had always been sort of the imperial headquarters in northern Italy. In 1859, that was lost to Sardinia. In 1866, uh, the, the Austrians had allowed Venetia, but they went to war with Prussia. And Sardinia came in on the Prussian side hoping to get spoils, and they were correct. They did. So although the Austrians smashed the Italian fleet at the Battle of Lisa, uh, Prussia gave the Italians Venetia. And so it's been part of the unified Italy ever since. There you go. All right. All right. Uh, t- two more questions uh, remaining in the show, both from Superfan Anita. She says, Dear gentlemen, greetings. Some questions for Charles. Number one, did uh, Louis the Sixteenth actually consecrate France to the Sacred Heart from his prison cell, or did he promise to do so? Uh, accounts seem to vary. Also, was he aware of Christ's request for the consecration of France to the Sacred Heart before he went into prison? If the act of consecration was, has, in fact, never been made, couldn't the present claimants to the throne of France make this act of consecration so that at least one of them does it legitimately? Good question. Well, the answer is, I don't know if you know about it before he went into prison. He made the act privately when he was in prison because he obviously couldn't do anything publicly, but he promised he would do it publicly if he were released, which he was not. Um, the question about the current claimants is a good one because uh, the current Count of Paris's father, um, a few months before he died, tried to do that very thing. And he, um, let me see. Uh, Sucker. Uh, Consecration, I guess. Now, mind you, various French heads of state have been asked to do it, and none of them uh, did. But Uh, yeah, here we go. A month before he died, the um, a month before he died in uh, 2019, so on December 18th, 2018, after having consecrated France to the Sacred Heart of Jesus on June 23rd, 2018, the Count of Paris modified the armies of France that the Sacred Heart is placed in its center. He thus responded more than three centuries later to the wish of Christ relayed by St. Margaret Marie. Now, he uh, he did this um, 
at Saint-Germain-le-Serrois during the inauguration of the statue of St. Louis as a child offered by the prince and by the former um, by the former um, parish of the kings of France. And this uh, was his prayer of, uh, of consecration of France to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Let us pray to St. Margaret Marie in 1675, asking Louis XIV, badly advised, to consecrate France to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, because it is at the center of the Sacred Heart that our destinies are forged. Let us pray to the Archangel St. Michael, protector of our Holy Church and friend of France, eldest daughter of the Church, to assist us in this prayer. Defend us in the fight against the demons unleashed on our poor humanity that has become incredulous. Prince of the celestial militia, pushed back to hell by divine virtue. Satan and the evil spirits who roam the world for the loss of souls. Let us pray to Mary Immaculate, our general mediatrix. We very humbly beg you, deign to intercede for us. Ask God to send St. Michael and the angels to remove all the obstacles that oppose the reign of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in our souls. Let us pray that the fire of the Holy Spirit descends on us in order to become bread of life, and that the mediating cup becomes the holy chalice of the heart of our soul, and that by this prefigure of the sacrament among the sacraments can begin the transfiguration of our country, France, and that of the universe as a whole. Let us pray that in this communion nothing can separate us from anything or anyone living or dead, so the communion of saints uh, will be. Nothing will scare us anymore because our life on earth being only a passage we will not die and will all be alive forever. Let us pray that we humans in this experience will become liturgical beings and having reached our inner royalty will become the tabernacle of the sacred heart of Jesus. Then the whole of life will become the celebration of the root, as uh, John, St. John of the Cross said. And humanity will be able to cry out as the Blessed Virgin Mary did, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit is delighted with God my Savior. Penetrated by these prayers, I, Henry, seventh of the name, descendant of the kings who built with the French this country, blessed by God and the saints of France. I humbly obey the request of St. Margaret Marie, and I consecrate France today in danger to the sacred heart of Jesus. France, eldest daughter of the church, remember your baptism. May the sacred heart of Jesus be forever your shield for the battles to come forever and ever. Amen. Well, he then died. Uh, sadly, um, on the 21st of uh, December, um, on the on the uh, 21st of December, by um, on the day that uh, the King Louis XVI is normally uh, commemorated. Now, a couple of things. One, for legitimists, of course, the uh, Count of Paris is not the King of France, and so is not in a position to do it. But it was admirable that he tried. Uh, he died, as I say, on the anniversary of Louis XVI's murder. Just He was going to go to the Mass and suddenly fell ill and decided to stay home, and then died. His son, now the Count of Paris, has removed all of the Sacred Heart stuff. So, now by the same token, the Duc d'Anjou, 
when uh, when Notre Dame burned, he gave a speech talking about uh, how France has gone downhill. But then um, he called for the consecration of France to be carried out by the whole of its episcopate. Uh, and he said, uh, he says, in France, already more than 25 bishops have placed their diocese under divine protection through the intercession of the Sacred Heart, the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, or even local saints have been invoked during older epidemics. <clears throat> I like to think of the weight that would have a solemn consecration of France carried out by the whole of its episcopate, with which the maximum number of faithful would be associated. Easter, the Feast of the Resurrection, could be the occasion. As the legitimate successor of the kings of France, who has always understood their role in its dual earthly and divine dimension, it would be my duty to associate myself with it, and I would do so in my soul and conscience. So basically, what I get out of that <clears throat> is that the Duc d'Anjou would like to consecrate France, but believes he needs the episcopate to do it with him. Uh, the Comte de Paris, apart from whether or not he was the rightful king, uh, attempted to do so entirely by himself as a private, semi-private act. But he tried, you know, which is a worthwhile thing. I may, uh, when it comes to France, I'm a legitimist myself, but I certainly don't dislike the Orléans, despite everything, and a lot of the Orléans, the Axel Francais and all that. Very good royalists, very good monarchists. And I... I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for uh, Henri Condopari for attempting it. I mean, after all, by his own sights, he was the man to do it. And I've always been a little unhappy with his uh, son removing the Sacred Heart from their coat of arms and all that. Alrighty, uh, last question for the show. Uh, Anita says, as per my last question that I asked in May, I am a new fan to the Father Baptist series. I devoured, hey. I, I def devoured the first three books, but have been taking my time reading Out of the Depths because I don't want it to end too soon. Of course, I knew at once which Knight Tumblr is Charles. While I read the books, I hear them in the or while I read the books, I hear them in the voice of Professor Beersack as he sounds in the Beersack and Coulomb talks, which everybody should listen to. My question is: In the books, the Knights Tumblr are real knights dubbed by a bishop, because bishops have the power to create knights. Are there, in fact, real knights out there dubbed by bishops? The world would seem a little less bleak if it were the case that there are actual knights of the Tumblr variety out there defending the kingdom of God. Thank you and God bless. Well, the answer is yes, there are. In fact, uh, let me see if I can come up with it. There's an interesting group. Uh, There were several, actually. Um, yeah, the um, 
was the Militia Christi that uh, is connected uh, to the Dominicans, uh, or was. Uh, so let's let's start with a really basic question, which is. What does it mean for a bishop to create a knight? How do you create a knight? I mean, it's not, you're not passing on, um, I mean, like, it's not like creating a priest, so so what is no. it? No. Well, it's like this. Um, knighthood was conceived, kind of like the coronation of kings, as a sort of eighth sacrament. It made a... Um, it was specifically the consecration of combat, physical, spiritual, etc., to the cause of Christ for people uh, set apart for that kind of service, the people whom we call knights. And, of course, there was a whole kind of spirituality and a whole sort of manner of life, chivalry, that they were supposed to try to live up to. Now, originally, uh, there were three sorts of people who could make knights. Other knights, bishops, and kings. And that's why in the Pontificale, up until 1960, there was an ordo for the making of a knight. Now, as time went on, uh, more and more it, uh, after knights vanished from the field thanks to gunpowder <laughs> knighthood became more and more a matter of uh, orders because you see there have been many knights who were not part of orders but you had the orders of knighthood that were founded during the crusades in Palestine and Spain uh, the order of Malta the Templars who got suppressed, the Teutonic Knights who are still with us, the Order of the Holy Sepulchre who are still with us, the Order of St. Lazarus, whose whether how much the current order called by that name is connected to the original order is, I'll leave that to other people to fight over. And then in Spain, uh, you had uh, the Orders of Santiago, uh, Alcantara, Montesa, and Calatrava. And in Portugal, Santiago, connected to the Spanish, Cristo and the Tower and Sword. Now, the uh, kings of Europe looked at these religious orders uh, and said, oh, we would like people like that surrounding us. And that was the origin of orders like the Order of the Garter, the Order of the Golden Fleece, uh, the Order of the Saint Esprit which are still given out. Well, not the Ascentistry, but the others are still given out. Um, and from that arose the whole concept of orders of knighthood as decorations, you see, because they were no longer fighting in combat. But those were generally given out by kings or sovereigns. And then there were also the uh, uh, the orders I, meant to, I mentioned that came out of the Crusades. Now, long about the 19th century, People noticed the uh, noticed the uh, need for people to um, 
undertake the apostolate uh, evangelization in a uh, uh, nightly manner. And so several things came out of that. One was a group uh, that was originally made up of um, former papal's wives. And that is called the Militia Christi. And they're, uh, they're dubbed. Uh, then there's another, the uh, what Militia. Is, what does dubbed exactly mean exactly? The Akulad. It basically, it means the sword is taken by the bishop, the king, or another knight. And you are dubbed with it. But the, um, the the militia Christi, as I say, they do it. But there's also the militia Jesu Christi. Um, they were a different group that found, they were founded after uh, after World War II uh, in uh, in France, and they in turn split over, um, well, basically pro and, uh, and anti-SSPX, to be honest. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, um, so they started out also with a bishop doing the dubbing and that, they've, they've, and they've continued that. Um, there's also a um, Templar revival in the church. There were all sorts of groups that called themselves Templars and all that. But as an order of um, knights, one has been revived in the church in the Archdiocese of Siena. Uh, and they have a grandmaster and everything else. <clears throat> they don't claim any descent from the old Templars, but they use their rule. And so uh, their grandmaster did something very chivalric. Uh, it so happened that some years ago, before he converted, uh, the former prime minister of Britain, Tony Blair, tried to receive communion at mass. Now, the grandmaster of the temple was there alongside the Archbishop of Siena and various other people. Nobody would do anything. But the Grandmaster went up and stopped Tony Blair from receiving. Stopped the Prime Minister of Great Britain from receiving. That's a pretty knightly act, I think. Did, did anything happen to him for doing that? Nope. You know, somebody who's like, who's, doesn't mind taking on a Prime Minister... A little bishop. And what's he going to say? Oh, oh, you enforce the church's rules. The waves of tomorrow. So, okay. So there are active, there are active organizations, um, and there are bishops who are making knights. Um, no, not many, but there sure, there sure are. So... Let's get to let's get to some like like practical questions um, in terms of like our listeners here. So, 
Okay, like so for my mom is studying to be and planning to be um third order Carmelite, right? Because no. she wants to dedicate her life to prayer and uh you know, uh and res- just live that kind of life. Um so that's a route for her. Yeah. Um is that is knighthood sort of an avenue in that same manner but a different I, direction? I, I... Yeah. I mean, particularly if you're going to be doing one of several things. If you're going to be pursuing the active uh, apostolate and you're a man, and that active apostolate may take you into places where you've got to be ready, at least intellectually, to fight. Um, I think the graces that come with the uh, knighting service uh, would be very important. Uh, similar, I mean, so frankly, I think quite apart from the orders that I mentioned, while I have special vocations, and the, the Knights of Malta, the Holy Sepulchre, quite apart from all them, um, if you're going to, uh, as I say, pursue the act of apostolate, if you're going to be an army officer, I think that probably uh, the ceremony of knighthood and the graces it brings would be the thing for you. Right. Dare I make this comparison, but I feel it's a talking point. Um, How do you make that decision between knighthood and the Knights of Columbus? Well, you don't have to make a decision between them at all. Okay. You could be both at once. Like you could, you don't have to choose between being a third order Carmelite and being a Knight of Columbus. Well, I guess I, I, I'm presuming that there are active um, things attached to each. Um, well, yes and no, no and yes. With the Milizia Christi and groups like that, there certainly are. Uh, but if you were knighted by a bishop purely for the purpose of pursuing an active and, dare I say it, combative role in the world of the church, um, it would be very much akin to the blessing of any. Yeah. I, I mean, if you look, if you look at the... I think it would probably be helpful at this point if we went to the actual ceremony. Because So what I was thinking, where my mind went, because um, I was thinking of, oh, what's the most combative thing that perhaps any person um, can be in for spiritual reasons? And to my mind, what came up was praying a rosary in front of an abortion clinic. Well, yeah, that definitely could be, especially if you made a habit of it. Yeah. And so uh, I thought that because the knights do that. Um, so, but I, yeah, uh, there are, excuse me, the Knights of Columbus do that. Um, okay. So the... Uh, so is there a local factor? Like, okay, I'm in, I'm in Southern California. Um, I, what are my options? I mean, how, how do you go about um, weighing your options here? Well, you you really would be hard put to actually um, here in in L.A. because 
again, you need to join a group like the um, Milites Christi or someone like that, or ah, the Militia Sante Sante Maria. That was the group I couldn't think of. Um, the um, Yeah, uh, the uh, Militia Sancte Maria is the other one. Um, do any of these orders, do you make promises? Well, you do. Um, give me just a second. Uh, like for- the... Uh, Yeah, the the Berizio uh, Novi Militis is what I'm looking for under the old uh, the old formula. Yeah, there's the the again the, there's kind of a fight between the um, between the um, those members of the order that uh, went SSPX and those who didn't. But at any rate, uh, it talks about the, the bishop on the blessing of a new knight. A knight can be created and blessed any day, any place, or others on the pontificale. Uh, it talks about what the bishop should wear. Uh, then the bishop prays. Uh, here we beseech you, O Lord, our prayers, and let this sword, which the servant of yours, with which the servant of yours wishes to be armed, be worthy of your Majesty's right hand, to say, as far as it can be, a defender of the churches, widows, orphans, and all who serve God against the cruelty of heathens and heretics, and others who lie in wait for him. Let him be terrified and fearful through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Oremos, say, O holy. Uh, Lord, Almighty Father, Eternal God, through the invocation of your holy name, and through the coming of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, this sword, so that this servant of yours, who this day is surrounded by your mercy, may trample on visible enemies and victorious over everything, may always remain unharmed. Um, let's get another prayer. Holy water on the sword. He gives the sword to the uh, knight. Nope, the knight um, doesn't really say, doesn't take any promises at all. Hmm. There's this prayer. We pray, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, Eternal God, who alone orders and arranges all things rightly, who in order to check the wickedness of the reprobate and to protect justice, permitted the use of the sword in the lands of men by your healthy disposition. And you wanted to institute a military order for the protection of the people. And who, through the blessed John, made it known to the soldiers who came to him in the desert they should strike no one, but they should be content with their own wages. We implore your mercy that, like David, you bestow upon your child the ability to overcome Goliath, and you made Judas Maccabeus triumph over the ferocity of the nations who do not invoke your name. So also to this servant of yours, who has newly placed his neck under the yoke of warfare, with heavenly piety give strength and boldness to the defense of faith and justice, and grant him the increase of faith, hope, and charity. 
and give him your fear as well as your love, humility, perseverance, obedience, and good patience, and arrange everything in him rightly, so that he may injure no one unjustly with his, with his sword or with another, and with it he defends all that is just and right, and performs just duty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, let him put on a new man, that he may fear you and worship you rightly, avoid the associations of the unfaithful, and extend his charity to his neighbor, obey his superior in all things correctly, and perform his duty justly in all things. Through Christ our Lord, let him put on a new man. Oh, no, that's it. That's it. Then there's the blessing of the sword. Skirted on him. Um... Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Now, mind you, there is a um, another interesting ceremony, uh, and that is the uh, well, is the creation of a regular night, but there is also the imposition of the cross for. Um, one going on crusade, which is interesting. Okay. Anyway, so that's uh, that's how that works. All right. Now you know. All right. That's that's it for the questions on this episode. Charles, do you have any closing words? Oh, do I have closing words? You know, I've got so many closing words. I barely know what to do with them all. A Boca Grande. Yeah. Well, boy. Eh. <laughs> you want to mess with El Boca Grande, La Boca Grande, senor. He's no wise. No wise. You don't come into this little pueblo, this little town, and mess with La Boca Grande. No, senor. You go back home. You go back where you come from. You don't, you don't mess around here. But, uh, no, it's been a lot of fun, as always. Um, I'd like all of our uh, all of our watchers, viewers, and listeners, you watchers and you holy ones, um, pray that I do a good job with these books and I get them done when I'm supposed to get them done. All right, all right. Uh, with that, one final question or two no. final questions. What is it if it's Monday? It's off the menu. What about the soul you save? It may very well. Be your own. See you next week, folks. Take care.